Good morning, again. Thank you for the opportunity to be here one more time. And it's been really great in the past week to connect to quite a number of you and hear a bit of your stories. And uh, I really appreciate that you open up. And I've been trying to write down quite a number of names and trying to memorize them. And um, I will go through those names and the pictures with uh, Michelle as I go home so that she will be prepared too. Um, because I realize I'm a bit ahead of her now because I've met so many. But we will come over as a family in July, hopefully. Now, just now, as we were singing and worshiping, I thought this is summarizing all I want to say. So it's quite wonderful how the worship and the ministry that I prepared blend in together. And I have not much to add to what we have been singing already, actually. But nevertheless, I'm going to occupy some 40 minutes of your time since we're here anyway. <laughs> if you were with us last week, you remember we have been uh, meditating on Elijah. His name means, my God is Yahweh. And the application last week was quite practical, actually. We thought of experiencing the reality of God giving thanks for the provision of God and learning to commune with God. Today we will look at Elisha and his name means my God is salvation. And the application this time will be slightly different. We will look at Elisha primarily as a picture really, a type of Christ, the Lord Jesus. The name Jesus means something similar. Uh, it means Jehovah is salvation or Jehovah is savior. And I had quite a nice uh, conversation last week about that name Jesus with uh, one of our brothers here. Jesus, of course, is the English for the Greek Jesus. And that in itself is a transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. But the thing is, there is salvation in none other. It says in Acts chapter 4, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we are so thankful that we can call upon him in English, or Greek, or Hebrew, or Dutch, or whatever language. And he will always hear when we call upon that name. So today we will look at Elisha. And another passage from Scripture too, and really as as pictures. So try to remember that these are all images, all Old Testament images, and they all show us something of Jesus and the salvation of God. And as I prepare for this message, suddenly I realized, hey, this is a bit of a testimony too. It went quite deep inside, it went through my heart. So as I give this message, it is really a bit of a testimony too. So Elijah, he succeeded Elijah in his ministry. And God had told Elijah in 1 Kings 19 to anoint Elijah as a prophet in his place. And just before Elijah leaves this planet in a quite a spectacular way, 
in uh, second in second kings 2 verse 9 he says to elijah ask what may i do for you before i'm taken away from you and elijah said please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me now many have linked this idea of a double portion to the the number of miracles that elijah performed and the double amount of miracles that elijah performed and i went on the internet and i found a list of 14 miracles and prophecies that elijah uh, performed and 28 that Elisha did. We will look today at the story uh, in, in, in the story of Elisha, the story where again a boy is raised from the dead. And as I read that, I was looking for okay, what then what is the double portion here? And maybe you remember if you are familiar with the story of Elisha that. Towards the end, or after he has died already, there's this strange story where there's a funeral going on, and uh, they are going to bury this this person, and then suddenly in the distance they see this band of raiders from uh, Moab, and they uh, quickly they throw the body in the grave of Elisha, and they, they run off, and this body touches the bones of Elisha, and is revived and stands on his feet. And I'm seriously a bit puzzled about this this story, and I'm gladly leaving that to some of you, preach on that one day and send me the link, I'd be quite interested to hear it. So I took the easy way out. I'm going to focus, besides this story on the boy that was raised, on the story of Naaman. Now you say, that's not fair, because Naaman never, I mean, he didn't die, he was just suffering from leprosy and well, that is correct, but still, I take this story as a, a resurrection story, really, and I will explain in a minute why. So let's look at Second Kings chapter four first. Second Kings chapter four, and we remember that Elijah was sent to a very poor woman, a widow, but Elisha is taken care of by quite a well-off woman and her husband, and they take good care of him, and they even extend their house, they build a small but nice room on top where he can stay, and Elisha is very thankful for all the effort they have made, and he wants to do something in return. And um, the woman says, well, I don't need anything, I'm fine, I'm living among my family. Now that is really a precious thing, and I realized that many of us don't have that. Many of us came from overseas, and we miss our family. And hopefully, this church is family. When you miss your own family, it's very wonderful if church becomes family, the family of God, really. So, Elisha is thinking of some sort of reward. So we start reading in verse 14. So he said, 2 Kings 4, 14, so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, call her. When he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Then she said, no, my lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son. 
And when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her, and, uh, and bore a son, when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head! So he said to a servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Have you ever sensed that the Lord has been leading you and giving you things and suddenly it turns out to be very tough? Maybe long ago in your younger years you have been praying and asking for a partner in life and the Lord very clearly brought the two of you together and you thank God for it and then only to find out that marriage is a struggle. Or maybe the Lord has sent you overseas and you have no doubts about it and still doubts are creeping up because you're just so very depressed being away from home. Or maybe you have decided to follow Jesus as the only one in your family and you know you made the right decision, but why is it so tough? Well, here's a woman, and her boy is really a miracle boy. Beyond hopes, and she wouldn't believe it, and yet she conceived and she receives this son as a fulfillment of her heart's desire, and then the boy dies on her lap. What does she do? Well, may I say it like this, she goes to Jesus. She doesn't even tell her husband. And to Gehazi, Elisha's servant, she says, yeah, I'm fine, I'm good. Until she reaches Elisha and then she really pours out all her grief in front of him and she refuses to let go of him. It says in verse 30, I will not leave you. And Elisha, as a picture of Jesus, he goes with her. He always does that. Jesus goes with us. Now we will read the last bit of the story, and together with part of the story of Naaman, we will make a spiritual application then. So verse 32, 2 Kings 4, verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child laying dead on his bed. He went in therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, but there were just the two of them, Elisha and the dead boy. And I want to ask you this morning, let it be just you and the Lord, just the two of you. They're going to close the door behind us. It's between me and Jesus. It's between you and Jesus. And then he prayed to the Lord, and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned, and walked back and forth in the house, and again went up, and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. So he sneezed seven times. Notice the number seven. We will continue reading in chapter 5, verse 1. So that's a different story, but I'm going to connect the two later on. 
Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Leprosy is a very terrible disease. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited, or she served, Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and this said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make a life that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? So you see how the king of Israel considers healing from leprosy as equal to raising a person from the dead. And I think for many the story is quite familiar, but if the Bible is still new to you, just please read the story at home. It's really wonderful. I'm going just to summarize it. Elisha sends to the king and asks Naaman to come to him. And Naaman has to wash seven times in the river. But he refuses. He's proud. Maybe he's thinking, I don't know what chemicals are there in the river. You never know. And I have better rivers at home. So he, he's very angry, actually. He refuses. But his servants very gently talk to him and persuade him. And then he changes his mind. And in verse 14, it says, So he went down and dipped seven times. So seven again in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Last week, I concluded the message with a verse from John 14, maybe you remember. It said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. But the night before that message, I couldn't sleep at all. I was uh, at Craig's place and was just tossing in my bed and I thought of that verse. And I told the Lord, yes, I love you, Lord, you know that. And I don't want anything to be between you and me. And then I thought, now he must come and reveal himself. He promised that. And I was half expecting him to, you know, appear in the room and probably I was kind of hallucinating because quite a had quite a severe jet lag. But of course nothing happened. Now I'm not saying that he cannot do that. He can do that if he wants to. And thank God that in many countries he does that. That Jesus appears in dreams and visions to people who can hardly meet him otherwise because there are no Christians there. But to me, with three Bibles in my suitcase and some more in Craig's house and Christians around me, it is not very likely that he's just going to appear in the room and speak to me. 
he will most likely reveal himself through his word and that word impressed on my heart and mind through the work of the Holy Spirit as I read it, as I study it. The same goes, I think, for all of us. So when I realized that, I asked the Lord to very specifically reveal something of himself in seven aspects related to his salvation, very specifically. And by the way, he did that. Not all seven aspects as strongly, but one point came to me very into my heart and it made me cry, really. And I thank God for that. And I just want to ask you, how did he reveal himself to you in the past week? So seven aspects. You, you say, why? Why seven? Shouldn't a classic sermon have three points? I'm not sure when I can sit through seven. Well, they're going to be short points. And the reason is, the boy sneezed seven times and Naaman dipped seven times in the river. So that's why. Sorry for that. You know, I find sneezing a very nice activity. I love it, really. It is very liberating and um, very satisfying, too. It's, it's a bit inconvenient when you are among other people, so you can't enjoy it as abundantly as you would. At home, my neighbor, she does that, and we can hear it in our house. And I like that. And um, I wondered, what is the force of sneezing? So I googled that. <laughs> it is 100 miles per hour. That's quite impressive. Usually people automatically close their eyes when they sneeze because it's a very overwhelming experience, really. And wouldn't it be great if this morning we experience somewhat of that liberating force as we meditate on his salvation and to be washed over by it, like, like when Naaman went down in that river, to be washed over by it again, or maybe for somebody here for the first time. So I put as a heading over the message, My God is Salvation. Elisha, My God is Salvation. And as a subtitle, subtitle, Cover Me. We will look, and quite briefly, not to worry about that, seven aspects. His mouth, his eyes, his hands, his blood. My ear, my tongue, my toe. So you say, where did you get that? Well, you'll find out as we get there. So we read again Second Kings 4, verse 34. And look at Elisha as a type, as a picture of Jesus. So it says, he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands and he stretched himself out on the child. So we will look at his mouth and not so much Elisha but Jesus. His mouth. So in the Song of Solomon, the bride says of the bridegroom and the bridegroom is Jesus. She says, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. And when the Lord Jesus walked on this earth, the people marveled at the words of grace that came out of his mouth. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, that means accused with words or attacked with words, 
he never reviled in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, it says in 1 Peter. And yet we of the human race, we just slapped him and spat in his face. We didn't want to acknowledge the contrast. Our mouth, which we used for lying and, and gossiping and hurting other people, compared to his mouth, full of grace and truth. But the psalmist in Psalm 2, and I find that very wonderful because this is Old Testament, before Jesus was born, but it says suddenly, kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And in Revelation chapter 1, we see him again, and a sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth, and it's used for judgment, no doubt about that. And you don't want to meet him like that. So kiss the sun today. And just to be clear on that, this is not at all romantic kissing. This is more a kiss of surrender. This is more like, like CPR almost, like life support. It's like saying, Lord, I'm dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Cover me. Your holy mouth on my sinful mouth. Breathe your life in me. And we sang just now, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Cover me with your mouth. Then secondly, his eyes. The bride in Song of Solomon also mentions the eyes of the bridegroom. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. There's really beautiful poetry, I like that. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. So what do we see when we look Jesus in the eyes? We see innocence and purity and unchanging love. He really saw people. He really, really saw them, the individual. He knew their names, and he had compassion with them. One day, the disciple Peter, he was warming his hands at the fireplace, when at the same time his master was being abused up there. And Peter, down in the courtyard, he denied him three times. And then the rooster crowed. And it says in Luke 22, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus up there in the interrogation room and Peter down in the courtyard. And they made eye contact. What did Peter see? It doesn't say in the text. But I'm so very sure that what he saw was innocence, purity, and unchanging love. Probably this time washed with tears. And Peter went out and he wept. But we people, we couldn't take those eyes. The next thing that happens in verse 64, in the same chapter, they blindfolded him. Imagine that. Don't want to see those eyes. They blindfolded him. It's a choice, really. It's a choice. And I quote from Spurgeon. I came across uh, this portion this week, Spurgeon says, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. 
setting my eyes upon me as if he knew all my heart, says Spurgeon. The preacher said, young men, you are in trouble. Well, I was, sure enough. Says he, you will never get out of it unless you look to Christ. And then lifting up his hands, he cried out as only a primitive Methodist could do, look, look, look. I saw at once the way of salvation. Oh, how I did leap for joy at that moment. I know not what else he said. I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard his word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. I looked until I have, could have almost looked my eyes away. And in heaven, I will look on still in my joy unutterable. Lord, cover my eyes that have been lusting after people and things. My eyes that have looked down on others and that are full of pride. Cover my eyes with your eyes. You can also blindfold him. Then one day you will meet that same person, but this time with eyes like a flame of fire. In Revelation chapter 1. And if you look him in the eyes then... As C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, you are either very brave or very stupid. But the bride in Song of Solomon says, then I was in his eyes as one that found peace. Or in my Dutch translation, as one who surrenders. I've thought of that word surrender and I find even today there's always something inside me that cannot and will not surrender. I find it very troubling, but I'm glad it's in the Bible, in Romans 8, verse 7. So, I shouldn't be surprised. There's always something that cannot and will not surrender. And I tell the Lord, you know that, Lord, I am dead. I am dead in rebellion, really. And yet, I want to surrender, even though I don't want it. And I do surrender, even though I can't. You just cover me just as I am. Then his hands. The bride says in Song of Solomon, his hands are rods of gold. He's divine. He's God. He is the creator. And he came here and he used those hands to heal and to touch. And he says in Isaiah 65, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. And what did we do? We took those hands, tied them behind his back. Then we brought him to the cross and nailed those hands to a cross. Imagine that. The Creator, the Son of God. We nailed those hands to a cross. Elijah did stretch himself on, on that child. Did our Lord ever stretch himself more than on that cross? And he invites us. He invited Thomas. He invites you and me. Put your finger on those nail marks. And all we can say is, thank you, my Lord and my God. Cover my hands that have been stealing and beating up my younger brother and doing all sorts of things, even things I have forgotten already. You just cover my hands. So we saw his mouth his eyes, his hands. And then it happened. 
in the story we read, the child opened his eyes. And for us, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now let's turn to Naaman very briefly. He was a leper. He was suffering from a disease that would kill him. Leprosy in that time couldn't be cured. It would always lead to death. And that is why the king considered healing someone from leprosy as equal to raising somebody from the dead. If you were a leper, you could only wait, actually, for the disease to spread. And first you try to cover it, but it would spread all over your skin, actually eat up your body. It's terrible. You were doomed to die. But Naaman, he went down in that river and dipped seven times, and he was clean. He was fully healed, and he went home, and Elisha blessed him. He said, go in peace. Now, of course, this man was a foreigner. He didn't belong to Israel. If he had been an an Israelite, he would have followed the instructions in Leviticus 14. And it's quite amazing that in the Old Testament, the Lord provides for something that couldn't happen. He provides, you know, a, a whole chapter, what to do in case you are healed from leprosy. But that's impossible. And still it's in the Bible. That is grace, really. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 14. So that is book number 3 in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's not a very popular book. When you read through it, you think, what's all this about? And why should I read that? But there have been others in the past that have helped me a lot to start to appreciate this book. And we will just read seven verses, Leviticus 14, verse 1. So these are instructions what to do when you are healed from this terrible disease, if you belong to Israel. So Naaman didn't do that. He was a foreigner, but just imagine he was an Israelite. He would have to go through all this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, saying, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall examine, examine him, and indeed, if the leprosy is healed in the leper, then the priest shall command to take for him who is to be cleansed two living and clean birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it, the cedar wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. So point number four, his blood. Leprosy in the Bible is an image of sin. It starts small, and as I said, you try to cover it, but it will spread, and in the end, death. That is what sin does. So in the leper, we see actually the sinner. We see ourselves. 
But we are healed and we are cleansed if we have come to Christ. You see those two birds that we read of? They are birds of the sky. They speak, both of them speak of the one that came from heaven, of the Lord Jesus himself. And one bird is killed and the other bird was dipped in the blood of that first bird and then let loose in the open field. Now that's the picture, that is the image. The reality, the, the real thing we find in the New Testament, the fulfillment of that picture, we find it in Romans 4, verse 25, and I recommend all of you to just memorize that verse and learn it by heart. It says, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered for our offenses, so he was crucified for our sins, that's the first bird, and who was raised again for our justification. And justification means to be declared righteous. That is the second bird. You see that second bird? It's let loose. It's, it's soaring high with blood on his wings. It's like crying out, it's finished. It says in Hebrews 9 that Christ went into the most holy place, into heaven itself, and appeared before God with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And I realize I'm mixing up a bit two Old Testament pictures here because Hebrews is speaking more on you know, the high priest going into the holy place. But the idea is there that the blood is prevent, presented before God. And I and you, we are covered or can be covered by that blood. Last three points. My ear, my tongue, my toe. Let's continue reading in Leviticus 14, verse 13. And we don't go into every detail because it's, it's quite a long chapter with a lot of instructions that they had to go through. We let's just read verse 13 and 14. Then he shall kill the lamb in the place where he kills the sin offering and the burnt offering in a holy place. For as the sin offering is the priest's, so is the trespass offering. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and the priest shall put it on the tip of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, on the tongue of his right hand and on the big toe of his foot. So my ear that has listened to the voice of Satan so often is now covered with the blood of Jesus. It is sanctified, set apart to listen to him only. It says in Isaiah 50, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens me, my ear, to hear as the learned or as learners do. That verse is, describes the Lord Jesus, but it should apply to us too. Remember in the coming week that blood on your ear when you listen to things. And try to listen really to what Father is saying. And then my tongue, and that hit home really as I prepared it. You know, nowadays, wherever you go, they, they check your thumbprint, right? And it will open many doors, and many other doors keep closed. And if you want to 
you know, going to your iPhone, it's really your iPhone, so you use your thumbprint that only you uh, have access to it. And it's very hard nowadays to, to just fake your passport because the thumbprint means it's you, it's, and it's only you, and it's your identity. I thought of that. And that one day, there will be that great white throne. And there's somebody on that throne. It's Jesus. And it says in Revelation 20 that there were people before that throne, and they were all dead. I never realized that, but they are all dead. And yet they stand on their feet, and they try to escape, to hide, to go somewhere, but there's no place to be found. And it says they are judged according to their works. Nothing less and nothing more. But justice only. And, and it's terrible, and you hardly dare to continue reading. I remember my mom, when she was just saved, she said, I wouldn't read Revelation, it's, it's too scary. And I still find it scary. Just imagine that scene, that great white throne. You, you don't want to be there. But where are we? Where am I? Then there's that other book, the Book of Life. And my name is in there. How? Well, I have looked to Christ. And I said, He for me, or I would have died the eternal death. And now, my thumbprint, and I say hallelujah for that, my thumbprint is covered with that blood. And now his identity is all that counts. It's covered with his blood. His identity and all he is, is all that counts. And therefore, finally, all I want is to walk in his ways. There's blood on my toe. He leads me and I say, take my life and let it be consecrated, God, to thee. My God is salvation. And he has covered me. Has he covered you? And has he covered your neighbor? Shall we worship him? Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord and Savior, and how he has stretched himself and covered us. And if there's somebody here who is not covered yet, he is willing to cover all of us. We thank you for his sacrifice and for the blood that speaks in your presence, that covers every sin and every shortcoming. And we thank you that you cover our identity, Lord Jesus, that there's your blood over our thumbprint, and now it's your identity that counts. We just want to thank you for that. Amen.